Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's special guest is an expert in men's health, hormonal optimization, and is in general just a a wicked sort of truth seeker. Today we have Dave Lee. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, bro. Awesome. Dave, do you want to let my listeners know a little bit about, just give them a bit of a sneak peek into, you know, your journey and how you got so fascinated into optimizing health? Sure. Um, I mean, I started out as a musician, so I was in music for eight years probably not looking after myself as well as I should have, as most musicians do, particularly young. And then my first step into it, I guess, was actually getting into probably some of the stuff that you're into, which is like the natural testosterone optimization stuff. I was into training, wasn't really getting results that were too good. So I I kind of got into it there. I think that was my first step into it. And then I had a bit of an injury that kind of struck me out of the blue. I mean, I woke up one morning and you know, couldn't walk, basically. I spent a couple of years rehabilitating a head injury for that. And when I reached the failure of the Western medical system where the doctors couldn't help me, couldn't tell me what was going on, told me I wouldn't walk again, took things into my own hands, uh, did a lot of research, a lot of reading, you know, a lot of it out of desperation at that point because I was just trying to solve a problem. And then I ended up going back to university, doing a diploma in science, dropping out of a master's in neuropsychiatry to pursue hormone replacement. 
and then that began my work in I hope that also led me to Paul Check. actually. Paul Check was a big part of that journey because Paul Check was what opened me up to a more, I guess, holistic and functional approach to the human body. But I had a really great physio named uh, Stephen Hooper who introduced me to his work. And then through that, I started to help and coach other men on the side of my regular job just for, you know, just, just to help out and to, to make ends meet at that point. And then it progressed into what I'm doing today, where I've been able to work with some awesome people all over the world and, uh, you know, coach hundreds, hundreds of men now in Australia and internationally and, you know, improving their, their hormone uh, profiles, both using testosterone replacement and other means, uh, but then also working on the health overall with, you know, every aspect that I think is important to, to functional health in men. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to dive into Dave. I'd love to dive into what you've seen, you know, with young men. Like, what have you seen have been some of the biggest struggles that young men are facing today? They're not doing well. Like, there's a lot of young men who are not doing well. And I think that, I think, you know, obviously we've always had issues um, and now it's more acceptable to talk about these issues. So I think it, it seems like there's more of it going on. But I think at the same time, there is a bit of a war being in, uh, waged from environmental and, and social factors against men's masculinity from everything from like endocrine disrupting chemicals to this idea of toxic masculinity and so on. So what I see with younger men coming up is I, I see guys who are, you know, let's say early 20s, like you know, let's say 18 to 25, who really, you know, they have very low testosterone. Um, they really struggle with their sense of identity, masculinity and drive. Um, I see a lot of metabolic dysfunction as well. Um, and I probably see a split. I, I see, I see a split. Some guys who do everything right. Like I, I see guys who are, you know, they're, they're like biohacking extreme in like the age of their early twenties to try and solve their problems. Um, and then I see another group of guys who just do not know how to take care of their health at all because they haven't been taught. Um, so yeah, a, a huge range man, but I do see a lot of young guys low testosterone, uh, poor mental health, anxiety and depression. Probably anxiety is the main thing I see the most, which I would just call fear and stress. Um, and yeah, man, I see a lot of younger guys in the Western world really, really struggling. Yeah. What about, I guess, um, what are your, I guess, when it comes to suggesting going on TRT, like do you have a certain certain boxes you, you want to tick first before a man wants to, go on TRT? Like, what does that, what does that journey sort of look like? Sure. I mean, the first part is that they have to, they have to be able to explain TRT to me. So they have to show me that they've done the research and they know what they're doing. Because I think it's really important that if you're going to make such a drastic intervention into your endocrinology for life, you need to know what you're doing. So I'll quiz them. And if they can't answer a quiz, I'll, I'll just say, look, I'm, I'm going to postpone our appointment and we'll chat later. So I think that's the first part is having a intrinsic understanding of what you plan to do to your body. It's like that's the most important thing for me. And then in terms of like them going on TRT, I mean, obviously they need their levels to be low and they need to have symptoms. Um, and they also need to have tried to rectify the issue unless it's a primary issue. Like if they've got damage to the testicles, um, you know, there's there's nothing that can be done. And that's, that's TRT. But um, if, if it's stress-induced, um, if they've got like a secondary, uh, secondary hypogonadism where they've got a shutdown of LH and FSH, Generally, the, the goal should be to try and resolve whatever stressor is, is suppressing that function. And generally, I mean, with some of these guys, it can just be from overtraining, like from, from just working too hard. And that's, that's an easy fix. 
Other times it can be from your poor nutrition, psychological stress, and those things can sometimes be overcome, sometimes can't. But then there's this really interesting third category, bro. I mean, you've probably come across this and, and looked into this as well, where that it just seems like a lot of younger men are just not making enough testosterone, even though they're doing everything right. And this is the thing that this is often what I tend to see. Like by the time they've come to me, generally they've you know, maybe they've come across your work and like you know they they're, they're doing everything right. And I mean like meticulous everything to a T, flawless diet and lifestyle, and basically like. They have to do that just to hold it together. So if they tick every possible box, they're okay. But as soon as they slip up, they have like one little, you know, meal at a restaurant or they have like a, they miss a workout, like something very, very minor. It just goes to shit. And they're the guys who I see the most who, who come to me wanting to go on TRT because they know what it is. They know what they're doing. They've tried everything and they've realized that their, their body is just working against them. Mm. And I guess, Dave, like, when it comes to seeing some of the changes following, you know, um, TRT use, like, do you want to sort of describe some of the things you've seen with with men, like after starting TRT? Like, what is it? What has it done for some men? It's awesome. Like, again, I, I tend to see a split of two things because I often really push that the TRT is just a foundation. Um, it's not going to do all the work for you. I think a lot of people think. TRT is going to be like a masculinity version of something like dexamphetamine, um, where it's just like it hits you like a ton of bricks and you're like, man, I am now the alpha male and I'm just going to go fuck shit up and get absolutely jacked. And that is absolutely not what it is. And I think, unfortunately, you know, guys who don't start with me and they, they start with other people, they, they may have that expectation, like a false expectation that doesn't get met. Because what, what TRT does is it... It allows you to do the work that you need to do. I often say it allows you to do all the things that you know you probably should already be doing. And it gives you the results you deserve. It doesn't really give you any more. I would argue that maybe it gives you a touch more because now your testosterone is not impacted by, by things such as you know crash dieting or undersleeping and stuff. So like you can get a bit of leeway with, with certain things, but in general, it gives you what you deserve. And what I tend to see is you know, guys who've been discouraged from training because they haven't, you know, progr- like these are guys who are following like a, a very, very precise progressive overload program and they've got their diet and their macros now and they're just not getting any results. These are the guys who tend to do really, really well because, you know, that they get back in the gym and they do everything that they were doing before and now all of a sudden they're making wicked progress. But the thing that I see the most is the mental side of things. And what I tend to see is a resolution of learned fear which a lot of people would call you know social or generalized anxiety where these men have been fearful of you know their surroundings and particularly if it's happened during their upbringing like if they didn't hit a peak of testosterone during puberty and they went through development with low testosterone they can often be very anxious and fearful because they were the the low level man in, in in their group and then that has formed their view of the world so that tends to go away I see a lot of guys starting their own businesses, which is really cool. Like they tend to kind of have a, a they tend to be more resilient to stress. So they kind of go out and, and do the things that maybe they've always wanted to do. Um, but I, I just I just see guys really starting their journey in terms of they're beginning their, their path as men. They they tend to want to get more into psychological self-development or you know, if they're into dating, like they want to understand stuff like game and red pill stuff, or basically whatever they're into, they just tend to go into a lot harder and they often find their purpose in the world and all these really awesome things happen, but it is contingent on the fact that they are doing the work as well. 
you know, that we've, we've built the foundation and now they need to build the house on top. And yeah. when they go into building the house on top and doing that work, I mean, I, I see men transform in, you know, just like their energy and how they're talking to you in the space of like eight to 12 weeks. Like when I catch up with them for a follow-up, I'm just like, dude, you are doing a lot better. And they'll go, yeah, I know. So yeah, it's awesome, man. Like some of the changes I see is just incredible. Let's get into the um, the biochemistry slash physiology around like following administration of testosterone. Do you want to explain why it may not just be testosterone that's exerting these effects? It's the downstream metabolites. Do you want to sort of explain that a bit? Sure. So testosterone increases dopamine transmission. So eventually the brain will adjust to this. And this is why some, not every guy gets this, but some guy will get like a honeymoon period where like they go on test and it is like they've taken a bit of amphetamine. Like they're just absolutely fucking charging because the, the body doesn't know that you're about to pin it with a bunch of tests. So the, the systems are not ready for that, that homeostatic balance. So it, it can often be quite a rush when, when people start. But in general, what you're doing is you're increasing the transmission of, of dopamine, which is going to allow for more focus, motivation, and drive, but it's not going to do it in the way that stuff like, you know, um, ADHD stimulants, for example, will increase dopamine by, you know, two to tenfold or even a hundredfold, depending on what you're doing. So that, that's the first part of it. And then I really believe that a lot of the benefits of testosterone come down to the improvement in energy metabolism, um, but then also the, the neurosteroid effects, particularly of DHT. And this is why I'm so against using things to block DHT, because DHT is one of, all the neurosteroids are important, so I can't say it's the most important, but for what men are trying to achieve from testosterone replacement, which is that you know alpha male embodiment of whatever that they're trying to go for, it comes from DHT and DHT increases norepinephrine and GABA. So I say that DHT is like the neurosteroid version of caffeine and theanine. It gives you that, that drive. I'm, I'm using analogies for your audience here. Um, it's, uh, it, it gives you that, that drive and, and, you know, norepinephrine. It, it, it makes you, I, I, I say norepinephrine is like the brain's adrenaline. Like it makes you want to go forward and focus and get stuff done. But GABA also gives you that calmness and that, the, the breaks on the over excitatory processes in the brain. So for me, that's what creates the, the energy of testosterone in the brain. It's that increase in norepinephrine and GABA and also the increase in dopamine transmission that I think when you talk to a lot of younger men and you speak to them and understand how they're feeling, what their problems are, what they're going through, you can go, okay, that neurotransmitter profile increase is probably exactly what you need because I have very different and potentially controversial and triggering views on depression, particularly in men, but I really think that depression can really be overcome once you get inertia and you start to move forward in whatever your purpose is in life. And I think that having that boost in, in how the brain is working is one of the keys in being able to get started with that journey and, and move forward if that is your goal and your purpose and what you want to do. Mm. So then I guess, obviously, you mentioned around the... I'm um, not a fan of the DHT blockers. I'm the same, man. Like I'm, I'm very much against, you know, the use of finasteride and other potent DHT blockers for many of the same reasons. But do you want to elaborate on some of the consequences and even the, some of the long-term semi-permanent dangers of DHT blockers? Mm. Yeah, and like I'm, I'm one of the few people who work very closely with the, with the PFS guys, the post-finasteride syndrome guys, and. You know, this, this syndrome can even be triggered by stuff like sore palmetto um, and other natural DHT blockers as well. And 
Unfortunately, it's not fully understood. And I don't think it ever will be because no one's going to pay for the research into completely understanding the etiology of PFS. It's never going to happen. But what, what tends to happen is that what does happen is when you use something like finasteride or dutasteride, uh, which are the two main you know, hair loss drugs, what they do is they systemically block 5-alpha reductase. And I believe they're more potent towards 5-alpha reductase too, but I could be wrong on that one. But basically, they block 5-alpha reductase activity by up to 90% in the body. And that's, a, that's an absolute shit ton. And what this will do is, I mean, it will stop the, the hair follicle being suffocated, which I don't actually think DHT causes hair loss, but I think that blocking DHT does fix hair loss. Um, but, you know, drinking a bottle of wine will make you feel less anxious, but it doesn't mean it cures anxiety. So I think it's the wrong medicine for the job. But, I mean, it, it does work, you know, for what people are trying to achieve, which is why it gets prescribed. And when you block DHT, you, you're basically stopping the body from being able to produce the most important androgenic metabolite of testosterone. You're, you're basically destroying your masculinity on a biological level, but then you're also blocking all the other neurosteroids that are 5-alpha reductase induced as well, such as allopregnitolone, which is basically about the brain's version of Valium. So if you imagine like your own endogenous version of masculinity and then your own endogenous version of Valium, I mean, you have to be fucking stupid to want to reduce them in your body. Like that's just, that's just suicide for your mental health. But people don't know this. Doctors tell you that there's no side effects. And one of my clients actually sent me a research, like they're, they're recruiting people for a study for injectable finasteride. And the doctors are assuring people on the study that there are no side effects of this drug. It is well tolerated. And fuck, man, like I, 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 I hate to think what injecting it would do. Um, that's just yeah. absolutely terrifying. Injecting, okay. injecting as in not, not on the, in, it's not in the scalp, obviously, like, Intramuscular. Intramuscular. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, if if oral, I mean, oral gets a ninety percent shutdown. So it's like, okay, well, let's go for something stronger. Let's see if we can get a hundred. Which is just madness. So what what I see with these guys, unfortunately, is that um, a lot of guys when they do cease using finasteride because it gives them you know these side effects that we can imagine, which is usually sexual dysfunction, anxiety, and depression, and a um, decline in strength and body composition. Uh, the side effects don't go away. And we don't know why. We, we have ideas. We believe that there is some kind of epigenetic switch that, that happens in terms of, I think it's something to do with a regulatory protein called STAR, um, steroidogenic, regu uh, re steroidogenic acute regulatory protein, which basically allows hormones to travel from the, from the mitochondria into the cell. So it basically increases hormone synthesis across the board. I think that gets downregulated. But I also think there becomes some kind of an issue with the androgen receptor as well, because a lot of guys, they, they get sky-high DHT levels after they come off this drug, but it doesn't resolve any of their symptoms and they still feel like garbage. So there's something that happens on a very, very deep biological level that unfortunately is very, very long-lasting. We're talking months and years, and we're talking some people who don't even recover from this. And I've been fortunate enough that all the guys who I'm working with are in the process of recovering, like they are improving. But this is something that we're talking, you know, months and years. And, and there are many, many guys you know, out there um, who don't ever recover from this, unfortunately. Mm. The, same, the same could also be said with the um, like reishi mushroom and, and lion's mane. Some of these herbal extracts that guys think are just pretty benign, but I, I still think some of them can, you know, induce some degree of damage. 
whilst mm. they as well um, with, you know, their DHT blocking ability. But in terms of like TRT, I want to sort of go back to like when it comes to you suggesting or outlining a protocol for utilizing TRT, talk about the nuances in terms of dosing, frequency, like all these things that influence their response. Sure. So first of all, I'll obviously preface, I only coach men in this. I don't prescribe or give medical advice, of course. But so in terms of dosing, we'll start with dosing because dosing is probably the most controversial thing for people who don't understand this. And when I say people who don't understand this, it tends to be bodybuilders who understand anabolic steroids very, very, very well and then move into the TRT field and don't really understand what they're saying, which can be quite damaging advice for a lot of younger men who are looking up to these guys. So when it comes to dosing, and I'm going to give credit to, to my friend Gil, who's, who's done an amazing video on this on the TRT and hormone optimization channel. The dose in terms of milligrams that you give, like let's say you and I were both on TRT. Now, Lucas is not on TRT and I am. So I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I use 250 a week, which is a high dose. But I achieve on 250 a week what many other men would achieve on 200, 175. I've even got guys on 100 or 120 milligrams who have higher levels than me. So dosing is very, very individual. When you say you achieve, you mean a certain number of total testosterone? A certain number, yeah, like a certain, like, so when I'm looking at, at this, so we've got total testosterone and free testosterone. Free testosterone tends to be what we primarily go off in terms of symptom resolution and achieving goals. But total testosterone is a measure of how much testosterone is in your body, whether it's injected or applied transdermally or made endogenously. So on 250 milligrams of testosterone a week, uh, I get a total testosterone of about 50, but there are many guys who get a 50 or even higher on 200, 175, 120, or even lower than that. So when we're looking at dosing, dosing is a tool so that you can administer the same dose consistently over time, but a dose for one person will not yield the same effect as another person. So when we're talking about what what we're going for with trt like people say oh once you go beyond a certain dose it's not trt anymore but then i can say well response that you're getting on 125 a week that you say is trt is what i get on 250 so that doesn't really make any sense so we've, we've got to be looking at levels so dose is a, is a tool to uh be able to provide a consistent treatment protocol and, but it's not comparable between people. If you want to compare between people, it's best to look at levels. But then again, we're not able to see antigen receptor function across you know, different people and how that can differ. So there's a lot of nuance. But I think that people should start on whatever dose they're comfortable with. And I often joke with men and I say, if I tell you to start on 100 milligrams a week, you're going to take more. So it's good to be able to actually talk to men and, and to, to have an agreement on what are you actually going to use? Are you going to actually listen to what I'm saying? Are you going to listen to what your doctor has told you to do? You're not because you're talking to me. So coming up with something that is actually going to happen and move forward and helping them understand the importance of that. So, I mean, guys will start at anywhere between 100 and 200 milligrams a week. I think 150 is a good starting point, but I don't think there's anything wrong with starting north or south, depending on the individual. But what, what you're doing is you're basically throwing a dart at the dartboard and trying to hit a bullseye. So you've got to start somewhere. And personally, I, I check blood work a little bit earlier. Like I like to check it at about six weeks um, because I can go, okay, you may not be at the final destination yet because there's multiple half-lives that build up in the system when you're using a long-acting testosterone. But we can kind of see where you're going. So if you're drastically under-responding or you're drastically over-responding, we can kind of course correct. 
And what I tend to see in terms of dosing, in terms of frequency, I think twice a week is a good place to start. I think any less than that, you're very unlikely going to achieve a good symptom resolution consistently. There are some guys who can do it once a week or every five days and good for them. But on average, it's twice a week. And this is why I'll, I'll use the caffeine analogy. So testosterone, cypionate or enanthate, which we would typically use for TRT, has a half-life of about, depending on the study that you read, anywhere from six to 12 days. So we'll call it 10 days, which is like the accepted half-life. Now, caffeine, depending on your metabolism, has a half-life of about eight hours. Now, I don't know about you, but if I drink a cup of coffee first thing in the morning, it's not gradually building up in effects for four hours, peaking and then gradually dropping off. It tends to peak early and then drop off. Testosterone is the same thing. So people assume that it's going to give you an even distribution of effects over that half-life. Caffeine doesn't do it either. It doesn't. Everything peaks early and then it drops off. So it depends on the individual, but twice a week is usually a good start. But a lot of guys need to do it three times a week to feel even over the course of the week. And some guys need to do it daily. Some guys even go for a cream that they can use daily on the scrotum, which is like a compounded cream that works very well. So it depends on the individual with that. And then in terms of levels, like how much testosterone someone needs to actually resolve their symptoms, it's going to depend on their age and it's going to depend on the level in which they got their symptoms. So if they got low testosterone symptoms at a relatively high free testosterone level, it would be logical to assume that they're going to need a higher testosterone level to feel better than someone who only got symptoms when they got down very low. So the free testosterone level that people need to resolve symptoms is anywhere between like 600, which is like within the reference range, the reference range, and 1500, sometimes even more. It just, it completely depends on the guy. And I'd like to inquire about, you know, the um, implications on um, SHBG. Is there a reason why twice a week is oftentimes the go-to or like what's the implications there with SHBG? Yeah, SHBG is something that gets overly obsessed over, in, in my opinion, in the TRT community because it gets labeled as a bad guy because it's going, well, this guy is binding up all my free testosterone so i don't want but then the guys who get it really really low they go oh no mine's really low and then if it's low that's associated with diabetes and hypothyroidism and dying so i want it higher and at the end of the day there are things that will influence your shbg like ketogenic diet will raise your shbg hypothyroidism will lower your shbg metabolic syndrome will lower it but so you've always got to check for those things for sure but there are a lot of people who will just genetically have higher or lower SHBG than the norm. And you just got to work with it. It's just something that it's part of everyone's individual genetic blueprint, what makes them them. And it's just going to be worked around. So there's a lot of people who think that SHBG is the primary factor for injection frequency. And I think it is a factor because SHBG determines how much free testosterone you have versus how much bound testosterone you have. And that will impact the biological half-lives of each respective uh, hormone in the body. But SHBG doesn't impact the speed in which you cleave the ester from testosterone. It doesn't impact the metabolism of the ester. So I think it is a factor for sure, but it is not the primary factor. For me, what SHBG shows is how much total testosterone are you going to need to raise your free testosterone? Because if someone's got a high SHBG, they're going to need a lot more total testosterone to bring their free TR than someone with a low SHBG. So for me, SHBG is one of the factors that I use to determine starting dose, because if you've got a very low SHBG, 
I'll probably be starting you off on less. Whereas if you've got a high SHBG, I'll be more inclined to start you on more because you're going to need more or less totals. But for me, I have seen guys who have SHBG in the single digits who feel great doing once a week. And I've got guys who have got SHBG at like 40, 50, 60, 70 who need to do daily injections. Otherwise, they don't feel good. So it's a factor for sure, but it's not as much of a factor as people think. Mm, yeah, really well explained. Um, you know, when you mentioned before around maybe at the six-week mark, you like to reassess their bloods, but I'd imagine you're not only looking at their testosterone. What are some of the other things you're you're observing? Sure. So it depends on if they can get their blood work provided through like Medicare or insurance, because if you can get your blood work for free, I will check everything all the time. But if you're paying like 400 bucks for a private blood panel, I'm going to be a bit more strategic in terms of when we're going to check blood work. So what I will generally do, and it's going to come down to the person's budget, of course, in terms of what they can do, but ideally I will be checking a full comprehensive panel before anyone even talks about starting TRT. Because if you've got hypothyroidism, if you've got an adrenal insufficiency, if you've got a fatty liver or, you know, C-reactive protein jacked to the roof, like if, if there's other parameters that we can address that could be contributing to why you feel like shit, then that needs to be exhausted first because none of those require a permanent long-term intervention. So TRT should be looked at as a last resort and everything should be assessed first. So generally the stuff that I'll, I like the panel for Australians. There's one on iMedical. I don't have any affiliation with iMedical, but they're just really good. I, I, um, I use, yeah, I use iMedical myself. They're awesome, man, because you can just go online, you buy the blood work like a t-shirt, you just you know, put it in your cart and check out, and then you can go get your blood work done. They'll email you the results later that day. And it's awesome. So, and it's also great because a lot of people don't know this, but if you go and get your blood work done for thyroid in Australia and you want to check free T3 levels, it doesn't matter if your doctor says to run it. Medicare will not run free T3 if your TSH is within range. And the range goes up to 4.5, which is bullshit. So the only way to check T3 levels is to actually get it done privately, which is fucking stupid. But anyway, so I check. I'm probably not going to get all this right off the top of my head, but red blood cells, white blood cells, liver panel, kidney panel, cholesterol panel, vitamin D, fasting insulin, testosterone panel, DHEA, estrogen, SHBG, Full thyroid panel, C-reactive protein. Homocysteine? Yeah. Homocysteine. Yes, that's the last one. That's, that's what's included in, in the BB4+. Plus. And then I'll add on anything extra that may be implicated for that individual. But to me, that kind of gives me a pretty holistic view of all the systems in the body. Plus, you've got to have a conversation with them, of course, to work out everything else going on. And for me, I mean, I don't talk to anybody... All my initial consults are an hour. Um, and I think that if, if, you, if someone wants to go on TRT, you can't talk to a doctor for 10 minutes about this. Like it, it, you, you've really got to delve into a lot of stuff and, and have a lot of questions answered and, and so on. And I think that's really important. So at the six-week mark, I honestly don't check anything except for testosterone, free testosterone, because I don't think anything is going to have moved that much in six weeks. And if it's going to cost the individual 400 bucks to check it again, I don't think it, it, it just shows everything in, in transients and assuming that we're, we're doing physiological testosterone replacement, it shouldn't have impacted any of your other biological factors significantly in, in that period of time. So what I'll do is I'll get them to, we'll get their dose, you know, as close to the bullseye as we can send them away for eight to 12 weeks so that it can actually settle into the body. They, the body can adjust and, and heal around having a higher testosterone environment. And then when they come back for a follow-up, that's when you check everything again. 
So, and again, I'll do the exact same panel. Sometimes I'll just check the hormones and then I'll follow them up again later and check everything. But yeah, you, you people have really got to be looking at everything. And I know there's a lot of doctors who they just check the, the testosterone and it's like testosterone impacts pretty much every system in the body. You've got to look at everything. Mm. What about all the, um, all the paranoia around exogenous testosterone affecting the lipids, like cholesterol? Mm. Is that, are we talking supra-physiological doses of tests? Yeah. Or? yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you jack your body up beyond what it can naturally tolerate physiologically, which is different for everyone, you will generally see a reduction in HDL and a spike in LDL. But it's not huge. I mean, unless you, it, it will, it's huge if you're using a fuck ton of gear, of course. But in general, it's not something that goes, whoa, like this is a, this is a huge concern. It goes, oh, you're on cycle. But if, if when, we're, when we're within the regular parameters of TRT, generally we actually see lipids improve. And this is because when someone is deficient in testosterone, generally they're also deficient in estradiol. And when estradiol becomes crushed down to nothing, as we know from people who use aromatase inhibitors, cholesterol also goes to shit. So, yeah, but when we bring someone's testosterone up from very low to you know, normal, healthy range, generally lipids will improve. HDL will usually go up and LDL will usually go down a little bit. But it's also, I mean, the thing with, with cholesterol, and I'm sure you'll agree on this, is it is impacted by so many things. And so many things that have nothing to do with how much cholesterol someone eats. So there, there's so many moving variables going on that cholesterol is always in, in transience, unless people are very dialed in with their day-to-day -day life and what they're doing. But yeah, I mean, one of the main markers that people are either using an aromatase inhibitor or they're, you know, they're on cycle is their lipid profile will go to shit. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned um, around aromatase inhibitors. I'd love to, you know, let's talk about aromatase inhibitors. Why men are so still stuck on the old school thought that estrogen mm. is harmful. Like let's, you know, discuss mm. that. I think some of the, the reasons why um, I'm, I'm going to talk about this with you because we have commonalities in being interested in Ray Peak's work. Um, I think a lot of the misunderstanding about estradiol comes down to a lack of differentiation in early studies between xenoestrogens and endogenous estradiol. And lumping them together is not going to yield any kind of understanding of endogenous estradiol because xenoestrogens activity on the estrogen receptor is like 100 to 1,000 fold times stronger. So it is not wise to demonize an endogenous hormone in, in that way because they're not the same. And... I can speak from experience because when I started, T and this is why I love working with men on TRT, because when I started, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. So I took a Rimidex for like a year. Um, so I can speak from experience. Like it makes you feel like dog shit. And one thing that's very interesting about a Rimidex is when, when you hunt around, you know, Reddit or forums, or like when I talk to my guys about it, who've used it, there's this universal consensus that a Rimidex just makes you feel like shit. A Rimidex is a nastrozole. And it's, it's the most commonly used competitive aromatase inhibitor. Letrozole, not really used very much. It crosses the blood-brain barrier. It's very, very, very strong. So aromatase tends to be the frontline treatment for lowering estrogen on TRT. And what you find is that irrespective of how much, because what will happen is individual will feel like shit, and then everyone goes, oh, you've tainted your estradiol. And then you get blood work done, and you go, actually, it's not that low. It's actually only moved by a little bit, but the aromatase itself makes people feel like shit. 
So I've seen some research to suggest that it actually acts as a serum, and therefore it's also actually in impacting the binding of the actual estradiol that is floating around. I think it also may impact the progesterone receptor, but I, I haven't found enough conclusive research on that. But at the end of the day, what happens with, with these AIs is people just, they, they don't understand the drugs, which is understandable because they're not pharmacists. And they go, oh, okay, if I take this little, you know, tiny piece of Arimidex, you know, two to three times a week or whatever, I'm just going to knock my estrogen down by a little bit. And then my testosterone to estrogen ratio will increase a little bit in favor of testosterone. And that will give me more beneficial effects of testosterone. And to me, from a growth science perspective, that makes sense. I'm like, I can get on board with that. Problem is it doesn't work. Um, and there's a lot of things in health and nutrition that are like that, where on paper it goes, yep, that sounds sick. But then when you do it, it just doesn't work out that way. And estrogen is like that. And what, when I look at, like, I always check estrogen levels in all my clients. And I work with a lot of, of, of people who don't. And I understand that. I understand why they don't do it because people get fixated on it. But I like to look at estrogen as a symptom. So if, if estrogen goes out the wazoo, like if it goes through the absolute sky, like I'm, I'm talking like three to four times the top of the range, then I'm going to go, okay, why is it doing this? And I think that needs to be the question that we need to ask. If, if people are getting estrogenic symptoms, the body should be able to regulate its own production of aromatase and estrogen from testosterone. So if it's not doing that, we need to understand why, because there's a reason. And if you band-aid it, you're going to miss something pretty important in your biology. So the stuff that I look for is, well, firstly, like metabolic syndrome. Like if you're severely overweight, that will probably do it. But also liver disease is a big one and hypothyroidism is a big one. So they're the two things that I'll be checking for if someone is getting estrogenic symptoms. I'll also check their blood pressure as well. Um, that's a really big one that goes unnoticed, just like genetic high blood pressure can also impact aromatase function. But yeah, people are very caught up to think that um, estrogen is a bad guy and testosterone is a good guy. And there are plenty of studies that show that when, I think there's, there's like a rat study, and I, I, I mean, rat studies are not that conclusive for humans, but there's a lot of stuff that you can't really do with humans. This would be a fascinating human study, but it would never happen. Um, where basically they gave a whole bunch of rats like DHT, and then in one group, they also gave them an aromatase inhibitor, and in the other group, they didn't. So the group of rats with the high estrogen, high DHT, just fucked. They just had tons of sex, like very aggressive sexual activity. And the group with the blocked estrogen and the high DHT were not interested in sex at all. So there's definitely a synergistic effect between estrogen and sex drive. And, and we know that estrogen is so important for uh, neurological, uh, neurological function. It's very neuroprotective, but it, it's about looking at going, okay, how much testosterone does someone have and how much estrogen does someone have? Because I think if you took someone with like, you know, we use the Australian units for, for reference, like top of the range for estrogen tends to be like 150. Um, so if someone's got an estrogen of 150, but they've got a testosterone of like five, that's a problem. They're going to feel like shit. But if they've got that estrogen of 150 and their testosterone's up at 30, 40, 50, then all of a sudden it's a completely different story. And this just, it comes down to how people feel because bro, when I, when I took Arimidex, I was a dum-dum. Like my brain did, we would not have been able to have this conversation. Like my brain did not work. And it was on a very, very low dose. And I know many other people who say that when they experimented with Arimidex or any kind of AI, it just nukes their cognition. And for me, it just, it, it made the, it made my brain so quiet that I just wasn't able to articulate my thoughts. So it's, uh, people tend to find that when they use the AI, like I often say to guys, I'll say, 
because they're oh, I got prescribed an AI by my doctor and, and he said I should take it. And I say, okay, take it. Um, and then two weeks later, they go, oh, stop taking the AI. I mean, sometimes they just have to learn it for themselves. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's something that gets very demonized for a misunderstanding. And I think what, if, if people are concerned about estrogen, they should, be, they should be optimizing the health of their liver and their thyroid, and they should be making sure that they are avoiding xenoestrogens from the environment. They're, they're the bad ones. Yeah. I, I want to share my, my, my own bloods. Um, my total T is uh, 988, so optimizing, doing everything I can naturally. Um, but my estrogen is also, it's plus 15 above the reference range I use on iMedical. So it's like 55 or something. And I remember I went through a period of time when I wanted to like just crush estrogen. This was a long time ago when I didn't understand anything. I think every single, I feel like it's a rite of passage. With, yeah, usually, absolutely. Yeah. And when I, when I did go on that um, estrogen blocking cascade i felt i did feel like shit man like I, the first thing that went away was the, the morning wood disappeared um i got really dry joints and i just i just felt i felt horrible man horrible yeah absolutely man i think what can happen sometimes it can be a bit of a false uh a false thing for some people because when when they first take the aromatics like within a couple of hours some guys go oh i feel better and i think it's because when you block uh block aromatase you up potentially upregulate five alpha reductase uh, but you definitely get a different ratio of estrogen to testosterone and DHT. So they go, oh, I feel better. And then they wake up the next morning and morning wood's gone, joints dry. You feel like shit. Just this general feeling of malaise. And then you go, oh, okay, maybe I was wrong. But yeah, it is, it's definitely a rite of passage, man, for, for men on this journey. Because you know, when you don't understand this from a lay perspective, it makes sense. Because estrogen is for women and testosterone is for men. And we know that's not true. But I, I know I fell for that. And I think everyone else does as well. Mm. Let's discuss um, a little bit around prolactin. Have you seen any sort of relationship between prolactin and estrogen at all? Yeah, prolactin's a pain in the ass. It's, it's probably the, the biggest pain in the ass for uh, people working in this space. So, yeah, I think estrogen does bring up prolactin. Yeah, it does. But I think to have high prolactin from, from optimized testosterone and estrogen levels, you have to have already had high prolactin to begin with. I think they do track together. And I think that all the research shows that they do track together, but it doesn't mean that bringing your estrogen up into an optimal level should bring your prolactin up to the point that it's problematic. And I think that that's the misconception. Um, I think prolactin is a stress hormone in men. Um, I really do. I see it spike with stress. And I had my own experience with this. I remember it was probably like the second or maybe third time I got blood drawn for TRT. And at this point, like I was still going through um, my rehab for my head injury. So like I was already very stressed and, and not doing well in general. And somehow I managed to get the nurse on her first day of taking blood. And I was her first patient and she was nervous as fuck. And it was a bloodbath. It was, it took about 30 minutes for her to get the, it was so fucking painful because she kept having to poke her. Like she was moving the needle and it was in the vein. Like well, my prolactin was like three times the top of the range from that. Because of the, of the stress and pain that I was going through getting that blood drawn, it acutely spiked my prolactin. So that, that to me was a big example. And I've, I've had a couple of guys and like they'll, they'll come in with that prolactin, like their prolactin's usually good. Like I like prolactin to be under 200, um, but you know, it's, it's okay if it's a bit north, but that's kind of my, my ideal point with it. Guys come in like they're always under 200 and then they spike up like 400, 450. And I go, what happened that morning? And they go, nothing, bro. And I'm like, did you get a text from your girlfriend right before you got your blood drawn? And they'll go, oh, wait. Yeah, okay. So 
you know, stress will impact it acutely, and it's quite interesting how that happens. But generally, if, if prolactin is elevated over time, um, I mean, one thing I'm always going to look at again is the thyroid. And I think the thyroid is like the dark horse of, of hormone optimization. And I think that a lot of guys who are walking around with suboptimal thyroid function on TRT are getting a lot of side effects that they're blaming on cortisol, estrogen, prolactin. And it's because hypothyroidism will increase cortisol, uh, prolactin, and estrogen. So that, that's one thing that I'm always looking at is going, okay, prolactin's high um, and you've got issues, you've got symptoms of hypothyroidism. I think that's the first thing to look at. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of all, all the liver as well. Liver is always, always key, but that's implicated in the thyroid too. But I think the, the mistake that a lot of guys go for is they, they just go straight for the Capergoli or the Pramipexol. And they work, like they will take the prolactin right down. But the issue is the dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome that comes with that. And what I say to them is, okay, if you're going to go on this drug, just know that if, if you're not planning to use it indefinitely, you need to be prepared for withdrawals, but you also need to be prepared for the fact that your prolactin is going to go right back to where it was before it started. Um, because unless you can identify why it was jacked up in the first place, it's just going to go, it's just going to go back to normal. So yeah. And then obviously with prolactin, there can be like a prolactinoma. So you can have like a, um, a cyst on the pituitary gland, like a growth that will cause elevated prolactin levels, of course, but that should always get screened for with an MRI with, with an individual's doctor before they start to go down this route. Mm. I guess with the prolactin side of things, just curious, man, like have you ever seen a man's prolactin be so low that they actually get a lot of the symptoms associated, like negative symptoms associated with low yeah. prolactins? Yeah. And if they're not doing anything to lower it, it that's a hallmark of low pregnenolone. Really? Wow. Yeah, so there's there's been instances in, in research where women who've had low prolactin and they haven't been able to breastfeed because that's the function of prolactin is to help with lactation. Uh, they'll run blood work and find they've actually got low pregnenolone and they'll use pregnenolone to bring it up. Prolactin will come up and, and so forth. So low prolactin is one of the markers I look for with low pregnenolone levels. Hmm. Well, then I guess that's that's a good way to segue into um, DHEA and pregnenolone because I know you've done a lot hmm. of research on these and let's discuss maybe a time and place, when would you deploy both either DHEA or pregnenolone? Sure. Yeah, so I've done a, a very, very large amount of research on these, and I've also got a, a lot of experience working with these hormones, with individuals, which is very cool. And I've also used them a lot myself, so I can speak from experience. Again, DHEA and pregnenolone, in terms of compounds that I, I have in the toolbox, are a huge, enormous pain in my ass because everyone responds to these so, so, so differently. Generally with testosterone, like when I was speaking before about how like there's kind of that range that people are on of like 100 to, to 250, but most people kind of respond typically, pregnenolone DHEA out the window. Everyone responds very, very differently. And it's very, very tricky to get the dose right when you first start. Very, very tricky. So I'll start with pregnenolone first. So when I'm looking for an issue with pregnenolone, I mean, if the client's in the States, we can just run blood work for it for pregnenolone sulfate. It's very, very easy. You just treat it if it's low. We can't do that in Australia. And a lot of European countries won't check for pregnenolone either. I think they can send it to Germany, but a lot of the time it's just not feasible. So it can be very difficult to check. So a lot of time we have to go off symptoms. So the first thing I look for is like non-existent progesterone. If an individual has undetectable progesterone levels and they've got symptoms of the low progesterone and their DHEA is also low, then you can look at pregnenolone supplementation. Also, if the individual has had significant head traumas or psychological traumas like PTSD, 
that's when you can also look at deploying pregnenolone for symptom resolution from that, because we know that, and this is thanks to the, the research of Dr. Mark Gordon, we know that pregnenolone production gets shut down in the brain when there's head trauma. And we also see a similar thing happen when there's psychological trauma, which is very interesting. So pregnenolone is something that I've just had a, an article written for Jay Campbell's website, which goes into this, this very deeply as well. But when, um, if you don't need pregnenolone and you take it, it's going to make you feel worse. Same with DHEA. There's this inverse U-shaped response, which is a fancy medical term for the sweet spot, which is at the top. Too little is bad, too much is bad. But they're just different kinds of bad. And the analogy that I, I think I use in my lecture for this is like, if, you're, if we stayed up all night and had this conversation, if I had one cup of coffee or maybe two, I'd feel better. If I had 20 cups of coffee, I'd feel bad. But it would be a different kind of bad than before I started, but it's still bad. And that tends to be what happens when you take these hormones too high is that you get a different set of negative side effects when it's too high as if it's too low. So unfortunately, there's some misinformation in the space where people will go, oh, okay, there's X, Y benefits of, of pregnenolone and ABC benefit of DHEA. Therefore, the more pregnenolone and DHEA I have, the more benefits I will receive. Doesn't work like that. Endocrinology doesn't work like that. There's homeostasis and balance and so on. So, you know, this is all a big balancing act. And... Yeah, so pregnenolone is something that is, if you don't need it and you take it, it's not going to help you. So it's something that you only want to take if you need it. And ideally, blood work is the best scenario for that. But yeah, low progesterone levels, history of head trauma, or you know, symptoms of anxiety and insomnia will also warrant a pregnenolone trial. A stutter will also warrant a pregnenolone trial, in, in my opinion. When I get guys stuttering and stammering over their words in consultations and I say, you know, are, are you nervous about talking about this now or is this a normal thing? And they'll say, no, it's a normal thing. And they've got the other things as well. I'll go, boom, that's definitely something we'll look at. DHEA is a cool compound. Um, DHEA has got some really interesting research on being an antidepressant. It acts very similarly to caffeine in the body without some of the stress effects. And it is very energizing. It's very pro-libido. The most common symptom I see from low DHEA is a lack of penile sensitivity. Um, so like a numb glands or inability to reach orgasm as a result of that. That's probably the most common thing I see come up from low DHEA. But that's because I, I talk very closely with the people who I speak to. So depression is a hallmark of low DHEA. Uh, low mood, low energy levels. Hypothyroid symptoms in the presence of good thyroid function is also a low DHEA symptom. So very important for energy levels, very important for mood, very important for glucose metabolism, very important for balancing out the effects of cortisol. So DHEA will, and this is a misconception, people think if you go on testosterone, it's going to reduce DHEA. Not true. There are studies that show that going on testosterone will increase DHEA. And that's, it's a, it's a very well done study that shows this. And that there's, there's information that goes around regarding the use of HCG that goes, you know, when you go on testosterone, it shuts down the function of the Leydig cells. Therefore, your testicles are no longer producing pregnenolone and DHEA. 100% true. But DHEA is primarily produced in the adrenals, which is not luteinizing hormone dependent. And it's also produced in various other tissues of the body. But what I typically see, like if, if a guy's got low testosterone and low DHEA, if the DHEA is very, 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 very low, I'll actually start with DHEA first to see how they go on that because that's a less invasive treatment and sometimes it resolves their symptoms and it will boost the testosterone up a little bit as well and then they can deploy testosterone later. But if testosterone is low and DHEA is a little bit low, 
generally the testosterone will bring up the DHEA. So I won't actually start with it because then if, if the DHEA is coming up on its own and then you add DHEA in, you can blow it out the roof too high. And then you get symptoms of insomnia, excess sweating, and you start to smell like you stink. It's got some interesting high side effects. So DHEA for men over the age of like 40 is something that should always be checked, whether you're on TRT or not. And a lot of the time, bumping up your DHEA by a little bit, if it is too low, will fix a lot of problems that maybe you didn't even realize that you had. It's, it's, a very, it's a very youthful hormone, in my opinion, in terms of what it does for people. But I see some, as an adjunct to TRT, when it is needed, I've, I've seen some amazing responses from DHEA. Mm. Wasn't there recently a study on the pro or the longevity benefits of DHEA with, was it metformin? There was like a- It was DHEA, metformin and growth hormone, I believe. Yeah, yeah, for anti-aging, right? Yeah, and it it makes sense when you combine them together because like you're you're basically hitting, you're hitting a lot of different pathways with with some really good modulatory effects. Um, And it was an interesting study, but- I think what the study showed was the synergy between the three as opposed to the benefits of the individuals. Yeah, that's pretty cool. With um, Just with the DHEA in terms of administering, is it orally absorbed or is it better sublingual? I think it's, it's better sublingual, uh, but I think orally is also fine. Um, I think if you are going to go with orally, it's better to use a micronized version uh, because of how it will impact or who have less of an impact from the first part of metabolism in the liver. And I actually like to use the sustained release formulations if we're going to use an oral version, just because of the very short half-life of DHEA. So DHEA converts to something called DHEA sulfate. And how much you are going to convert into sulfate will depend on the availability of the enzyme that, that has that conversion. So if you take like a physiological dose of DHEA, I mean, you're going to be, it's going to spike your levels up very quickly and then your ability to convert into DHEAS is going to depend on how much of that enzyme you have available at that given time. So the reason why sublingual, because it makes if you're going, okay, well, a fast absorption is bad, that means sublingual would be worse. But sublingual actually has more access to the enzyme that converts into DHEA sulfate than oral. So sublingual works very, very well. Um, transdermal DHEA also works very, very well. Um, so I think at the end of the day, it's going to come down to what you can get. Because when I first started working with DHEA, I used to be very adamant on it needs to either be sublingual or micronized sustained release, which both come from the pharmacy. Now, I work with a fuck ton of guys in Europe who cannot get that. All they can get is the life extension over-the-counter DHEA. Or you've got the guys in the States who go, yeah, but I can buy DHEA from Walmart for like five bucks. Um, so they're going to get that one. And honestly, at the end of the day, when it actually comes to symptom resolution and treatment response, it doesn't really matter that much from what I've actually seen in practice. But a year ago, I would have said, no, oral oral regular version is crap. I think in my lecture, I even say oral regular version is not preferred. But I can say now from working with a lot of these guys that oral is fine. But if you want to go like the best possible response, like transdermal, sublingual, or micronized sustained release. Yeah, cool. What about... um? I'm sure you've seen quite a lot of cases, I guess, of guys concerned about like pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. Do you want to sort of explore like, you know, I'd love to hear your stance. I know Jay Campbell's stance on metformin. I'm somewhat pro-metformin, but I'd love, yeah, I'd love to get your opinion on the use of metformin. Yeah, I, I love Jay's work and I love Jay's, his way of thinking regarding 
inflammation in terms of how, you know, correcting insulin resistance and modulating blood glucose levels is a good thing. I'm really for that. I, I like metformin. I like it on paper. I don't like it in practice because when I, when guys use it, it causes a lot of gastrointestinal side effects. And with most people, it goes away, but with a lot of them, it doesn't. And for the guys who don't tolerate it, they can't take metformin. So if metformin was better tolerated, I'd probably say everyone could benefit from using it. However, I think there are other ways to improve your, um, your metabolic function and your insulin resistance without deploying metformin. So metformin is definitely part of my toolbox. A lot of my clients use it. I've used it myself extensively. I've used it everywhere from 250 a day to like three grams a day and, and everywhere in between. Like I've experimented a lot with metformin. And I find for me that it reduces my energy levels too much. And I believe there's a reduction in cyclic AMP as a result. And I find that that for me is not ideal with my biology. Potentially, there's also some effects on the regeneration of cortisol. The enzyme that breaks down cortisol gets inhibited. So I'm not sure how much of an impact that actually has. But I know that for me, when I use metformin, I don't feel as cool, calm and collected as I usually do. But I practice intermittent fasting, so I feel like I'm getting that. I'm getting the AMPK activation either way, and I think I think what 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 is beneficial is modulating between the fat burning and the glucose metabolism. And whether you use that via metformin or fasting or you know cycling between you know a, a low carb and a high carb diet or whatever, I think you're getting that effect. And you know metformin is something that I I plan to revisit again in the future for sure, but. I'm not quite of the stance that I think everyone should take it. I think that it's something that if you could benefit from it and like if you're having issues with, with uh, blood sugar regulation and you're having issues with prediabetes and you're doing everything right, absolutely metformin for sure. But for everyone who's already healthy, I'm on offense. Yeah, 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 fair enough. And I'm sure you've probably, you've probably deployed some other insulin sensitizers. So like what are some of the other things you've, you know, leveraged over the years? Honestly, the I, I mean, I, I've leveraged everything, bro. I've tried everything. Berberine for me didn't really do shit. And I was using the one from Thorn. I think I tried the one from Now Foods as well. So like I used the ones that were shown to actually have the correct concentrations of Berberine. They didn't do shit to me. The Slim Pills from Enhanced Athlete, Tony Huge's brand, they worked. So the synergistic effect of whatever's in there, because I know it's Berberine and a whole bunch of other stuff, they work well. I actually really like those, but I just haven't really had a point to use them because I just, I'm not a bodybuilder. Like I do strength training and fighting. So it hasn't really been necessary for me to go, okay, I want to, you know, use them the way that someone would use the, the slim pills for. So I found it's been thyroid. Thyroid has had the biggest impact on glucose metabolism out of everything. Thyroid for me has been the thing that made carbs always give me energy. Like I never get any kind of sense of lethargy or wanting to lay down and have a nap after a big carby meal, never. And that's been since I've optimized thyroid. And a lot of my clients say the same, like when we fix up their thyroid and get it dialed in right, they go, yeah, I no longer am lazy. After. I mean, if you overeat and eat a huge meal, of course, it's going to make you lazy, you're going to digest it. But it's what made carbs work for me the way that they should work for me. And Thyroid was one of the last things that I visited personally. This was before I knew what I was doing with, with anything. I went and saw a naturopath who specialized in th 
thyroid function. And I went to her and I said, look, I'm on TRT. This is what I'm doing. And I still don't feel 100%. And she went, okay, cool. We're going to run it. So she did like a, what did she do? She did like a 24-hour adrenal panel. We did a Dutch test and a blood test. So it was saliva, urine, and blood. And she comes back and she goes, look, everything's pretty good, but your thyroid's not stellar. And she was like, it's not bad, but it's not good. And she, she back then, she explained to me the ratio between T3, reverse T3, and then a slightly elevated TSH. And she goes, look, if you want to try something, you should try thyroid therapy. So I believe I first started with the over-the-counter, like thyroid, natural to get a thyroid extract. I remember the first day I took that, I went, holy shit, this is big. Like this, this was a big impact for me. And hypothyroidism ran in my family. So I was like, okay. And then over six months, I tried to titrate it up to, you know, the equivalent of like four grains of, of thyroid, which would be like, uh, what, 40, 80, like 160 T4 and 40 T3. It's like a big thyroid dose. And that's what it took to bring my waking temperatures up to optimal. And that's what it took to bring my TSH down. My TSH wasn't that elevated. It was only just above two, but it, it took my free T3 to be like a 6.8 to bring the TSH onto one and to bring my waking temperatures up. So I just continued to touch up my thyroid. And then once I got it right, game changer, absolute game changer. Did you also accommodate that with upping your carbohydrates as well to like keep up with the fast metabolic oh, yeah. rate as well? Oh, yeah. Like I tend to, like if I'm maintaining, like I train every day, but like I'm eating like three and a half thousand calories a day to maintain. Whereas before it was like two and a half, maybe, maybe less than that. And yeah, I find that now like, I, you know, I'll fast, I'll have days where I'll do like a carnivore approach, like keto approach. And I'm fine. Like I still feel good, but I can definitely benefit from more carbohydrates. Absolutely. Like intra-workout carbs go a long way for me now in terms of like performance. So yeah, the, the thyroid was huge, man. And then the other one as well was not fucking with my estrogen levels because like I remember back after I stopped taking Rubidex, I was still in this mindset. Again, this was well before I knew anything about anything. I was like, okay, well, the Rubidex is bad, but like I can still use like DIM and I can still use like all these other things that are going to look. Once I, I fucked all them off and just left it, my my energy levels and insulin sensitivity got a lot better. Hmm. And I think, my, I think my A1C got better as well. With thyroid, I think I saw a study that showed that T3 can, it can increase DHT. There's like a po- yeah. Yeah, positive correlation between T3 and DHT. And that would make sense, right? Like how guys respond to it. T3 is amazing, man. Like I was saying to one of my clients the other day, he goes like, what are the best compounds for depression? And I said, T3 and proviron, proviron being a DHT analog. And you know, there are very few people with optimal thyroid function. And I think that, you know, T3 is something that, you know, obviously you want to talk to your doctor and you want to do this responsibly and so on. But upping your thyroid is, is such, it has such a huge effect on your biology because, you know, like I think they even showed that like a TSH beyond two was associated with increased cortisol. And I think that what happens is, and this, this is just an analogy that I use is that I really believe that we're like a hybrid car and I'm not talking about the fat and glucose metabolism. I'm talking about energy metabolism and adrenal metabolism. And I think that whatever we can't get from our regular energy metabolism, whether it's from sugars and fats and, you know, impeded ability to burn fats will cause this as well, like through fatty liver, the body will just compensate with stress and the body will compensate with jacking up the adrenals. And what I say is, you know, if I rip out your thyroid gland and you've got zero thyroid function and I bust in that wall with an ax and try to kill you, you're still going to be able to run away. 
you'll be able to try, but you'll be able to try to get away. Your adrenals will kick in when needed with stress. And my question is, well, if you've got day-to-day like suboptimal thyroid function, then how much of your body is having to upregulate a stress response to, to counteract for that? And if you fix that, then what kind of effect is that going to have on your mental health and physical health over the coming years? And I think that's the real benefit of thyroid is like, you know, again, you know, decreased T3 levels are associated with increased aromatase function. So, you know, it's if people are wanting to go, well, what's causing my estrogen to be a bit higher, my DHT to be a bit lower, and why don't I feel the way I want to feel? It's going, okay, well, estrogen being elevated could be a symptom of the fact that your thyroid's off or the fact that your liver's off. And, you know, if your liver's fucked, you're not going to be metabolizing T4 into T3. So it's all very connected. But I feel like a really big part of it is, you know, how much of the environment in terms of like the modern world with like pollution and modern diet and so on is fucking with our thyroids. Mm. I think there's a good, I think, I think a good amount. Yeah. With thyroid administration, is it a little bit different to the other hormones in that um, it can somewhat kickstart things like you can use it and then pull back and things sort of keep going yeah if, if you do it right you should like if someone's got severe Hashimoto's or whatever it's different but we're not talking about that but for the average individual who's wanting to optimize their thyroid you should never suppress TSH under like 0.3.4.5 because once you start to suppress your TSH fully then you're going to have shut your thyroid function down to an extent so basically, the more T3 you put in, the lower your TSH is going to get, which is good. Your thyroid is not having to work as hard to meet the demand. But if your thyroid is not able to meet the demand on its own, it makes sense to compensate. But the cool thing with thyroid, like there was a study, like I think Jay, Jay Campbell shared this like a long time ago when it came out, was that even withdrawing from like full thyroid replacement dosing for years, everyone rebounded with their thyroid very, very quickly. So it's something that even if you do suppress your thyroid function, your TSH completely, it'll respond back to normal. But with thyroid therapy, I just explained to people very simply that you're just topping up what you don't already have. And when you look at it like a top-up approach, it makes sense to go very, very slowly because any amount that you take is going to be more than you have at this point. So you can just gradually work up and up and up and up and up until you get to a point where the balance between what you're taking externally and what you're producing internally are giving you the optimal thyroid function. Mm, it's fascinating what about mm. i guess um we haven't really spoken at all about sleep and your sort of stance on melatonin i'd love to get your opinion there melatonin is very cool and I, I will credit victor black extensively with this because i think a lot of people should credit him more than they do because he is an absolute lord but i know you did a, a very big podcast with yeah, we, melatonin so i'm probably just going to echo a lot of what he said but melatonin, I, i've talked around melatonin a lot and like I've taken like 20, 30 milligrams a day of melatonin extensively. And that was very, very good for my sleep. It impacted me in a lot of really good ways. But then I ran out and being in Europe, like I'm in Lithuania at the moment. So I I ordered a bunch of iHerb to get here. And then I didn't pay the import tax. I didn't get the email and they sent it back to iHerb. And then I had to pay. I just couldn't be fussed ordering it again. But it was like a month and I hadn't taken it. And my sleep was fine. So there's really good research to show that external melatonin doesn't mess with your endogenous production. And I can, I mean, I've been using melatonin on and off since I first went to Hawaii with my family in like 2010. Um, And I remember buying it from then. So I mean, I've been using melatonin for over 10 years and I've always used it on and off. Never had any issues with it, but I think melatonin is a really good antioxidant. And I think that it's got really, really important 
effects on the body. And, and there's a guy called, um, I'm going to pronounce his last name wrong, Anthony Labares. I'm just going to, something like that. And he's got a really good video on the TRT and Hormone Optimization channel where he talks about the importance of if you're wanting to supplement with melatonin, like if you think it's going to be a big game changer for you, you measure your waking melatonin levels. And then if your waking melatonin levels are low, then you want to be going, okay, I'm not making enough melatonin. But when I've checked mine in the past, mine have always been very good. So I know that I don't need external melatonin. Do I benefit from it? Absolutely. But what I've been doing lately is I've been trying to refine my supplement protocol and regime down to like the essentials because I'm, I'm mobile at the moment. Getting stuff over here in Europe is difficult. So I don't find that melatonin impacts my sleep as much as something like phosphatidylserine or CBD oil. So it was the first to go. But if I was back in Australia, I'd probably add it back in. Particularly because of the, the cost as well, right? Like five cents per serve almost. Super, super cheap. Yeah, I like the, the ones of melatonin. I like uh, if people want to mess around with high dose melatonin, you can get uh, Nutricology make a 20 milligram capsule on iHerb. And I think, again, that's, it's like 50 cents to serve. Otherwise, now foods make them in like one, three, five, and 10. And their, their quality is excellent. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I mean, that's, that's, we've hit sort of an hour, but I sort of want to, I'd love to hear like, what are your plans, man? Like, what are you looking forward to doing in the future? What are some of your big ventures you got planned? Yeah. So I'm, I'm next month, I'm going to finally finish my book. And I've been writing my book for like over a year now, you know, just, but I, I've been very, very busy and in-depth working with clients one-on-one. So I haven't had a lot of time and energy to do it. So I'm taking a bit of time over here to, to get back in nature and get that book finished. Basically, it, it's become a bit of a monstrosity, which is why it's been taking me so long. Originally, I was just writing like a, a short PDF handbook on like the, the best practices for TRT. And now it's turned into like a massive book on basically like my guide to everything that you could possibly do as a man to live optimally. So everything from like mental health, physical health, hormones, but then also looking at like, you know, the psychological aspect of masculinity in a modern world. So it's kind of like a, a handbook for how men can intervene in multiple ways in terms of being the best men that they can be. So I'm going to finish that off. I'm also launching my podcast. So, and I'm going to have you on that one as well. So we can, we can dive into your stuff. So launching that and then, my plan is to actually spend a bit more time on what got me started on this, which is getting more involved with the online communities of people needing help because that's what got me started. And I don't have as much time to be on those communities as I would like to, because I know there's a lot of people need, who need help who can't afford it. And it also doesn't take long to help out people in those scenarios. So I'm also planning to grow my Facebook group a bit more, make that a bit of a paid Facebook group, provide more content through there. So kind of shift things away from, Still, obviously, doing my one-on-one consults and working with all my clients, and I've, I've got an awesome partnership with a clinic in Australia that I'm able to work with. But yeah, spending more time in terms of getting more of my information out there because you know I've I've really only been active in private Facebook groups, and I'm very very active and, and very very well known in those communities. But I don't have a YouTube channel. I don't I don't have all these things. So, which is funny because I actually have a marketing degree. So like. And I used to work in digital marketing. So I know full well how to grow and scale this, this digital brand in terms of doing I just, I'm just more, I've been more interested in helping people for the last couple of years. So I've really doubled down on that. And, and now I'm at a point where I want to get the information out to the masses. And I'm really excited because 
I think that I really like a lot of like the red pill stuff, like not all of it, but I really like a lot of that looking at this psychologically in terms of what's wrong. And then in terms of the biology and the biohacking, look at physically what, what's going wrong. And I think if you can compare, if you compare the two, I think you can get a really good intervention in terms of, of helping these young men, you know, be the men that they want to be. And then for me, it, I mean, it depends what's going to happen with the world. We won't get too into that, but I might stay here in Lithuania. I might come back to Australia, uh, move down to the south of WA and, and sort of down there. But either way, man, like we, we live in a, an exciting, evolving world. And uh, also excited to work more with you, bro. It's, uh, it's been really cool to connect with you and meet a fellow Australian who's, who's doing this stuff. Yeah, man. Well, first of all, I want to say like, yeah, I have a huge amount of respect for what you're doing and, you know, the content you're putting out, the things you're talking about, I've had a look at your YouTube videos. I mean, you're just crushing it, man. So just we got to keep going, keep educating, you know, be a voice for men, give them a chance to, I guess, live their best life. So for those listening in, I will leave the links to Dave's Facebook group and all of all of the links he mentioned. But um, Dave, man, thanks for coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you. No worries, bro. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 